Good morning, Fellowship. How are you? You're more awake than the first service, but it was earlier in the first service. So uh, as we continue today in our series through Galatians, no, Philippians, we're in Philippians, uh, and you can go ahead if you're looking in your Bibles, you can get to page 816, and we'll get there in a second. But as we kick off today, I'm going to ask you a little bit of a bummer of a question. Have you ever heard the phrase, misery loves company? You ever said, misery loves company? You ever been in a situation that kind of demanded that? It's a confusing phrase to me because as a word guy, I'm like, I don't think misery's very attractive. I don't think it's, I know that miserable people I know aren't very attractive. And I don't feel like when I'm feeling miserable, I'm very attractive to those people around me. Do you? When you're miserable, do you feel attractive? Do you feel like everybody wants to come and get some of that when they're near you? When you're feeling it the way you're feeling it? Well, we have to look at that phrase a little bit more carefully, and it's not scripture. We're not gonna break the, 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 the phrase down like we would scripture, but it doesn't say that company loves to be around misery. It says that misery loves company. You see, misery has these sticky fingers that like to reach out, and it spreads itself around. It likes to multiply itself. Um, it loves, loves, loves to be with other people. It's unsatisfied alone, and the more misery can involve itself in the lives of other people, it's just gonna bring them on in. It's going to be sticky. It's going to attract. And uh, here's a picture of this. And maybe if you're younger, you totally get it because of the movie a few years ago. And if you're totally older, you're going to get this because those cartoons before, they were on moving pictures. They were in the funny papers. You remember Peanuts with Charlie Brown? Anybody? Okay, give me a show of hands. You've got to interact with me and help me today. Okay, Fred is in the building. I don't know where he went. Um, he'll be back next week. If you're a guest, much better preacher will be in this, in this pulpit next week. Um, but as we go, as, thank you, Fred. I see you in the back. Now I know who to see if I'm doing right or if I'm wrong. So I can get the glares if I need them and I can get the thumbs up. Um, so Pigpen. You know Pigpen and Peanuts? There's Charlie Brown gets all the notoriety and Lucy wants all the attention. And we know it's really all about Snoopy and the Red Baron. But there's this character that shows up all the time named Pigpen. And if you remember Pigpen, Pigpen was the kid in the neighborhood who had some personal hygiene problems. You remember him? He kind of carried a dust cloud around him. If you don't know the kid I'm talking about, his clothes were all messy. And maybe you were that kid when you were 10 years old. And maybe you're still that kid when you're 40 years old. Um, just a little spray of Axe wouldn't hurt you. Um, so as you work around, or Old Spice or whatever it happens to be. So as you're working your way around, you get this idea that uh, he was totally accepted in the community. They just knew that if you got pig pen, you got the fog of filth that came with pig pen. Right? He just came. And I would imagine if you stood too close to Pigpen, you started to smell a little bit like Pigpen. And you might wear a little bit of what Pigpen wore. And friends, I want to tell you, as we talk about being miserable, if you're miserable, I can guarantee you, you're a little bit like Pigpen. You've got this fog of filth that just is all over you. And when you carry it around, it affects not only you and God, but it affects those people who are around you. In fact, when we're encased in that cloud of complaining that comes with being miserable... We find ourselves grumbling to God about how he really should rethink what he's doing in our lives. And when we're encased in that cloud of complaining, we tend to try to find as many people who want to be miserable as they can with us so that together we can kind of gang up and complain about who God is. Can we be honest that that sometimes happens with us even as believers? Maybe that's too far to go too soon in the sermon. Maybe I should have waited till about 20 minutes in before I kind of gave that one to you. But I'll tell you this, when you're feeling miserable, you can very easily misplace your worship. And instead of turning to the God who wants you, you turn to the life that you want from God. And when he doesn't deliver and come through the way you're expecting, all of a sudden all bets are off and you're like, you know, I trusted you for salvation, but I'm having a hard time trusting you for Thursday. 
The worst thing you can do in that moment is to let a miserable situation take root inside of you and not just, you're gonna be in some miserable situations. The question is, are you gonna be miserable? Because when you let misery attach itself to you, it's just a matter of time before you become not miserly, but miserly. You become a cheapskate with other people and you become a cheapskate with God. Misers, let me read these to you. Misers focus on what they don't have and also what they might lose. Bless you. Misers look at the rest of the world. They take account of what the world has and they find themselves lacking. Misers look at what God has and they wonder why he's holding out on them. And misers stop praising God for all the things they do have. Now, let's be real clear. I'm not talking about money. I'm talking about life. I mean, anyone in the room, regardless of how much money you have or how much money you want, you know what it's like to feel like there are days when, does God even know who I am? And if he does, what's his beef with me? What did I do to deserve this? Could he even know my name? Does he know I exist? And if you're not, if you're not careful, miserliness will take itself into ingratitude, and ingratitude, not gratitude, ingratitude. Ingratitude will create a distance between you and God where you just don't want to spend much time with him because you've forgotten that the most, great, the most greatest treasure, that's terrible grammar, but it communicates. Caleb said most humblest last week, though. <laughs> so the most greatest treasure you can have is not the things that God could give you. It would just be a walk with him, a relationship with him where he comes close to you. The greatest thing that's missing in a miser's life Somebody who's let misery turn them into a miserable person is personal time with God because they've run away and they've gone to sulk. Throughout the early weeks of this series, Fred continues to tell us that this point of calling uh, the study in Philippians eclipse is that we've got a huge, bright, magnificent God. And he pointed to the back wall and he said, this is God. And this is whatever your thing is, your problem, your situation, that person in your life, whatever it happens to be, he said maybe like a tennis ball size. And when you get that tennis ball or softball close enough to your face, all you see is a shadow. You're surrounded by that shadow. Although the sun is there, the brightness of our God, our great, incredible God is there. All we see is the darkness that's close to us. We come pretty nearsighted. So what is it, the thing, that as we look through Philippians this week in chapter 2, verse 12 and through 18, what's the thing that impedes our vision? The thing that impedes our vision this week is that we think the deck is stacked against us and somehow God's holding out on us. It's the vision that we experience when we can only see the problem that's before us, and worse, it's when we get so overwhelmed with the problem that's before us that we abandon even looking for God. We just walk away. When really what he wants us to do is walk straight to him. In fact, he wants us to run. This week is all about returning to worship our God. Not returning to worship in the group, but returning to worship him, just him and you, and whatever that quiet place is that you happen to know. Friends, here's the right perspective for this week that we're going to study. Personal worship will diffuse and destroy the misery of grumbling and complaining and replace that misery with gratitude and generosity. When we worship God and we get with him, he will diffuse and destroy that ingratitude that causes us to grumble. Now, if you're uh, new with us today, we welcome you. We're glad you're here. Again, Fred will be back next week. If you hate it today, don't not come back. Be sure to come back. But if you don't have a Bible with you, there's a paper copy in the pew in front of you. You're going to be on page 816. Everybody else, if you're going to be on your device, uh, you can go to the Bible app. Uh, or to your whatever app you happen to have. But the Bible app will also give you some fantastic announcements that you heard earlier that you may have forgotten already. And uh, there'll also be some discussion questions that you can reflect on through the week. You just go to the Bible app, 
You click events, and it's going to take you straight to Fellowship Asheville because it is apparently geocached to take us exactly where we happen to be. So as we get started today, enough of me. Time to look at the scriptures, Philippians chapter 2. I'm going to pray, and then we're going to read. Father God, thank you so much for the love that you give us. Lord Jesus, for the way you demonstrated that love for us and loved us enough to want a relationship even though we run and rebel. And Holy Spirit, we invite you into this place. There are so many in here who know you already and have you in their hearts. And as you knit us together, may we be a church full of unity who learns to love each other and not grumble to each other. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. Philippians chapter two, verse 12 goes like this. Therefore, Paul says, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as much in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing or complaining that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world holding fast to the word of life so that on that day, so that in the day of Christ I might be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even as I'm being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and I rejoice with you all. Likewise, you should all be glad and rejoice with me. Now, last week... As Caleb spoke with us in an incredible sermon he gave us on what the example of Jesus is for humility and how we all have a tendency to turn to pride, but we can always grow in humility. Paul said, this is what you should do is walk in humility. This week he says, this is how you do it. So as we walk through, Paul says, genuine worship happens when you get alone and you get right with God and you work out your own salvation. Hold on, I thought genuine worship was when we came and Cam did what Cam does and Katie does what Katie does and all the other doers do what they do and they lead us to sing. That's corporate worship. Corporate worship happens with people who are serving children here, but with happening with the SWAT teams and the SWAT teams who are going to make sure that Fellowship Weaver will happen. That's corporate worship. But individual worship is also special and God can only do, God will only do, God can do anything he wants to, but God will only do Certain things when you're alone with him and you get right between you and him. So say this, work out my salvation with fear and trembling. Because that's what he calls you to do is work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And lest we just be a Western congregation, not Western North Carolina, but Western in the world and only think about ourselves, let's make sure before we talk about what it means to have individualized salvation that we understand what it is to have a uniform salvation experience. You see, I don't get to approach Jesus any old way. The only way you or I or anybody in this world for all of time has been able to approach God, well, since Christ has been through, by grace, through faith. Paul says, it's a gift of God, not of works so that nobody can boast. Nobody gets to the heaven's water cooler and says, how'd you get here? Oh, I sold Girl Scout cookies. Or no, I helped a little old lady. Or I served third grade boys. God bless them, they served third grade boys or middle school girls. You don't get to heaven based on your actions. We only get there based on the shed blood of Christ and his rising from the dead to prove that the sin that he died for was not capable of keeping him dead. He is God Almighty. Paying a price that we have to come to only him to get. So in that sense, salvation is uniform. Salvation involves participating in something that God is doing huge outside of you and your experience. Let me say that again. Salvation involves participating in something God is doing that's huge outside of your experience. Me being a part of salvation means I get to enter in what God's doing with you and you and you. And what we get to do is we get to participate with what God is doing at church down the road and church down the mountain and church down the country. 
Because what God is doing is so much bigger than just what we're doing. It's so much bigger than what he's doing in me. But I want to tell you, we got to make sure that we understand that salvation is also very personal. Quick illustration. How many of you use an iPhone? Okay, stick your hand up. That's okay. Don't show me your phone. You don't have to. Some of you are cooler and you have a, a Google and it can do all the other stuff and your droid phone does it. Uh, now, it, those of us who have, I can control your phone because we have the same phone, right? I can say to a certain lady who lives in my phone, hey, call mom. But if I say that in this room, guess what? I activate like, how many, 75, 350 phones and we call everybody's mom. So while we have the same phone, we don't have the same phone. You with me? So while we have the same salvation, we don't have the same salvation. We have a unique experience inside of salvation where God does some things for you that he doesn't do for me. And you're like, whoa, whoa, hold on, David. Well, let's just look at it this way. Salvation personally involves participating in something that God is doing huge inside of you and your experience also. So why salvation uh, uniformly is because God's doing something much bigger outside of you. Salvation uniquely is the fact that God is doing some things inside of you that, he, that only he can do and only inside of you. Let me explain this a little bit more. Salvation is unique to your personality, right? Introverts are learning to walk with Jesus in a way where sometimes he says, you need to share your faith verbally with that person. It's not enough just to help the old lady across the street. It's an, it's, you gotta do it in the name of Jesus, and the extrovert's being told, hey, would you just be quiet sometimes and let the introverts do some work for me? So in your extroversion and in your introversion, you gotta listen to what the Holy Spirit says and allow him to work in your personality so you can work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Leaders in the room, any leaders in the room? Has God told you lately to quit bulldozing people and to listen to your staff? He's gonna work out your salvation and you need to work it out with fear and trembling, knowing that when you squelch that other voice that doesn't sound like yours, you may be keeping your team from operating at its optimal um, performance. Some of you are employees and you love to be employees and you just wanna go in and clock in and clock out and God's calling you to care more about the business. God's gonna work, he's gonna say, you know what, you need to stay late. You need to spend time. In fact, you may need to take a promotion and manage some people. Oh, I don't want to manage those people. I have to care more about the business. And God says, you know what? It was fine for you to do that for a while, but now I'm calling you to another work. I'm calling you to have an influence that you couldn't have from that seat or from that station at work. So what happens is your personality, God's going to work in you and through you. The good news is in this moment, God's given you entree into something that he created long before the world existed. Having the opportunity to work out your salvation in accordance with your God-ordained design is like you get to walk into heaven and say, God, I want to be a part of what you've been doing since before you ever made me. He thought you up long before Adam and Eve existed. He thought you up for a place and a time that he wanted a purpose for you. And when you walk into that place and say, God, who did you make me to be? He says, let's get to work. We've got some things we can accomplish. When you work out your salvation, you work out God's will in your life with the understanding that you are his personally designed special treasure, a special display piece in which the Holy Spirit wants to do what only the Spirit can do and only in you. This is very individual. It's very special, but it's all God-directed. I added this little illustration without telling Fred. I hope it's gonna be okay, so give me the nod or the Fred. It's okay, I can fix it if it's a bad one. Uh, anybody watch House Hunters? House Hunters on HDTV, all the ladies in the room are yes, and the guys are like, yes, I have to do that too, all right? So in House Hunters, people go looking for a house, right? Simple premise. God went looking for you. He wants to inhabit you. He wants to move in. He picked you out. 
He chose you for something he wanted to do inside of you. Now, he's got plenty of houses. He's got beach houses. He's got mountain houses. He's got Southern California houses. He's got Beirut houses. He's got houses everywhere. But he chooses to live in your house because in your neighborhood, he wants to do some things and accomplish some things that only you can do. So doll that house up so that God feels comfortable in it. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling with your personality. Now, also work out your salvation with fear and trembling with your sin. Because some of us have, we dabble in sins here and there and they catch us by surprise. We don't really sometimes know we're even sinning. We go do this and we may be a new Christian and God says, hey, that, that grieves my heart. And you're like, oh, well, I'll quit doing that, Lord. I'm sorry, I won't do it. And you go wander off somewhere else and you'll be faithful for a while and then you'll find another place and you'll do something and you'll be like, oh, Holy Spirit, did that grieve you? And he says, yes, that grieves me too. And he gently brings you through grace and you dabble in those things and he brings you back. And the key in those moments is when the Holy Spirit speaks to you is you just run to him. You worship him privately so that what you do in public follows his example. Now, some of us not only just dabble in little sins and get our act together, some of us have what, what the old preachers used to call besetting sins, sins that we don't dabble in but that we deep dive into. And you go into it and you get to a place where the guilt is so big that you can't possibly look at God. But then finally the conviction and the misery of it all is like, I can't stay here. Like the kid in the pig pen in the, the parable that Jesus gave, he said, I don't care what dad thinks about me, I gotta get home. When you run to him. And we work out our salvation with fear and trembling knowing that our sin is a sin. And this is important. While God uniformly takes care of every sin, God uniquely takes care of your sin. And if I were to spit some of my sins out, you'd be like, oh my goodness, I cannot believe Fred would let you in that pulpit. But you know what? I could put yours on the screen over here and everybody would go, oh, but this is the deal. Jesus is not surprised about any of them because only he's perfect. And he said, you know what? My cross is big enough for your sin. In, fi in fact, his love is so great that your sin doesn't have to be displayed if you'll just give it to him. He doesn't have to out that. He just says, I've already outed your sin on the cross and I've already taken care of it. Salvation is not only unique to your personality. It's not only unique to your sin. It's also unique to your struggle. So you work out your salvation with fear and trembling, knowing that your struggle uh, is part of what God has in plan for your life. And I'm not talking about um, like when injustice happens to you or when sin happens to you. God's going to take care of that. He declares that there are just certain things he's going to step in and take care of. But there are certain uh, times when we get so consumed with our disappointments that we miss out on opportunity to find abundance in the opportunity that God wants to provide. Let me, let me explain this. There's some moments that you get poured out so much and you're just like, I got nothing. And God's like, this is a perfect opportunity for me to fill you up, son, daughter. I can't fill you up unless you're empty of that. There's a need that I want to meet for you that I'm only going to meet if you'll bring that problem, that challenge. And some of you, some of us were hurt in middle school. Some of us were hurt yesterday at work. Some of us thought that God was going to deliver this or that to us. And we sit in that moment and we go, God, what are you up to? And he says, look, come talk to me. Don't grumble. Don't complain. Come spend time with me. Come worship me. But let's work that out, you and me, as you come to me with fear and trembling. Don't come bossing me around, telling me what you want out of me. Come spend time with me as your loving father who wants to spend time with you. So say this with me. Work out my salvation with fear and trembling. After all, this is, you don't have to repeat anymore. After all, this is a God of all creation. So we don't come in to walk with him and just say, give me some good, Jesus. We say, you have been so kind to me. I need what you have to offer to me. Now, the interesting thing is Jesus is not satisfied to just be satisfied with worship just one-on-one. -on -one. So Paul says, hey, you know what? You're gonna have to work out this salvation with fear and trembling in the company of other believers. And that's when it gets really funny. 
Because God's like, you know what? I think it would be fun. This is me. I'm personifying God here. I may not get this right exactly, but just work with me for a second. But God, I think this is the way he likes to be because he makes us laugh. He says, you know what? I'm going to take these 10 people who are working with their salvation with fear and trembling. I'm just going to shove them all into one church. And they're going to get to bump into each other as they're working out their salvation. And then this church may have 50 people. And we're going to let them all individually work out their salvation with fear and trembling. And they're going to bump into each other. Man, I'm so glad I'm not a member of like a 2,000-member a church where i got 2,000 other people working through their salvation with fear and trembling because they're going to bump into me. So what's the perfect size church where God's got you? But the key is, in God's economy, you're thinking, I've got to work out my salvation and fear and trembling with all these people watching? Well, in the world... In a dog-eat-dog culture where everybody's out for themselves, that would be a horrible life to live. But we're not part of an institution. We're part of a family. And if we're part of a family and God is doing what only he can do, we are a mixed bag of problems. We're a mixed bag of personalities. We're a mixed bag of sins, and we're a mixed bag of struggles. And in God's economy, when he puts us together, we are more than the sum of our parts. And he allows, thank God you're not struggling with the stuff I am. And I'm so glad you're not struggling. I'm not struggling with some of the stuff you are. But the good news is, what can happen is in that moment, I can say, you know what, in this area, I'm a little bit stronger than you are. Can I show you something that I saw in Scripture? Can I show you something God's worked in my life? And this is the most amazing thing. We may have totally unrelated problems, but because we have the same related Savior, he put us in the same place so that we could give each other what each other needed. That's God's economy. That, you can't engineer that. That's not the bachelor. That's not a matchmaker. That's not anything like that. That is God in his funny way putting us together and allowing us to extend grace one to another. So how do we do it? Here's the clear instruction. He says, do all things without grumbling and disputing in verse 14. Do all things. He doesn't say do just the easy things. He doesn't say just the things that we enjoy. He doesn't say just do the things that you like in your community with your church and uh, on your timetable. He says, no, do everything that you do together. And when you do it, don't grumble and complain. Well, grumbling, let's define grumbling before we go too far. Grumbling is the process of telling God all about your dissatisfaction. And at its worst, grumbling is my way of making my problem God's fault. The children of Israel did it. They grumbled. Why'd you? He delivered them from slavery. Why'd you put us out here? He gave them food. Why did you give us manna? They wanted a leader. Why did you give us Saul? We do this all the time. If we're not careful, and this is not everybody all the time, but this is a lot of us sometimes. Grumbling is the process of telling God all about your dissatisfaction. At its worst, grumbling is my way of making my problem God's fault. Friend, God wants to hear your troubles. And just like Caleb preached again so well last week, when we come to God, we need to remember that the God that we serve is the God who came as Jesus, who humbled himself and died on a cross. And if our salvation is one that is too proud to die on our own cross, then we have to be very, very careful that we're worshiping not ourselves, but we turn our worship toward him. When you're miserable and you're living miserly, you tell God that you think he's causing you to miss out on something you think you deserve. But when I do it, I'm really, what I'm really doing is I'm selling God short on his definition of what an abundant life is. Life with Jesus is only truly abundant when he fulfills me in those unfulfilled situations. When he gives me more than I can gin up on my own. When you're living that way, you're accusing God of holding out on you and saying, you're saying that he's keeping you from what you think is best. You basically call God a cheapskate and a holdout. And you've accused him of not willing, of loving you well enough. 
Now, as I prepared this sermon and I sent it over to, to, out of respect, obviously, for Fred, I was like, this is, you asked me to teach this text. This is where I think I'm going. And he said, he read it, and he said, good. He said, but the problem is, well, he didn't say it this way, but this is what I read. He said, you've not gone personal enough with it, David. This is all truth, but until people really see that you've done it, it's not real because there are people in this congregation with problems that are very, very real. So as we draw a picture of what that looks like for David Spray, okay, we, Beth and I, have been married in December. It'll be, this coming December is 25 years. And uh, we were engaged for about three years because her mother refused to let her marry me until she finished college. So we graduated, she graduated one week and we got married the next week and we showed her. And, um, <laughs> but we had been engaged for so long that we were like, you know what, we want to go ahead and start a family pretty soon. So within about six months of when we got married, you're already crying, kiddo. Uh, stop it. Um, but we, we were like, okay, let's, let's get after this. Let's see if we can have a family. And, um, and we were a family, the two of us. So if you're dealing with infertility, I just want to affirm you in your familyhood as a husband and wife. And if you don't want kids, then you may have chosen the better choice. Now I've got teenagers. But um, <laughs> different story for a different day. I love you, sweetheart. I love you, son. So, um, but what happened is we decided we were ready to have a family, and God didn't decide on our timetable that that's what he wanted. Now, I'm an only child. Sharing my stuff with a wife was plenty. I didn't have to share with kids. I was kind of cool with it. I knew I wanted to be a family man, but I could have waited 20 years until I had kids because I had plenty of stuff I wanted to accomplish with my wife. But after about six months of coming home once a month to a wife whose eyes were full of tears, we're not pregnant again. But I didn't feel it the way she did. What I felt is I can't do for my wife what she needs us to do. Now, we never went and found out, is it her problem? Is it my problem? We, just, it, we took it as our problem. There's some things we chose not to do to try to get pregnant, okay? Keeping it PG-13. We were just like, ah, whatever. That's cool for some people. That's not cool for us. But month after month after month, I don't know. I didn't multiply eight times 12, but after eight years and 12 months, somehow the, the hugs I gave her were very empty. And I would be hugging her trying to say things that I was really struggling to believe because I was telling God, what have you done to us? What did I do to you? I'm, do you really love her the way I love her? He was very gracious with us. He was very kind. He didn't strike me down. My emotions were real. They were inappropriate sometimes, but they were real. So I looked at him, and I would look at her, and I thought at the time that my job was to provide and protect my wife. And God said, son, my job is to provide and protect for your wife. Your job is just to love her the way I do. Well, well God, that, I, somehow that doesn't seem to pay off the way I want it to. He said, trust me. So God chose to grow our family through adoption. And you know what? We've been married 25 years. We're still infertile. I know. We just are. So what did I do with it? He chose to deliver something that we wanted in a different way. And what I've realized is I was praying for the wrong thing. I shouldn't have been praying for kids. I should have been praying to be a godly dad. Because there are moments right now when I am so not up to the job. And I don't realize it until after I've messed up. And I realize it about the time my kids realize it. And that is a horrible moment. But God's grace is big and good. And he's kind. And he's not bothered by my pain. But I'm ashamed that I didn't run to him quicker. That I didn't say, Father God, would you embrace me? Lord Jesus, thank you for doing stuff that I can. You've experienced these emotions, Jesus. You came down here. And then to just ignore the Holy Spirit sometimes, to not even give him the power to do what he wanted to do. Shame on me. 
are words that I use toward me. God never said shame on you. He said, son, come home. Son, come spend time with me. Well, complaining is when you don't just tell it to God. It's when you try to find somebody else to drag into the mess. Complaining defined is the process of telling people around you about your dissatisfaction with the life that God's given you. Complaining is when you've said, you know what, I'm tired of talking to God about this. I want to talk to some other people about my God. Because somewhere in there, we kind of know that God's right and we're probably wrong. But if I can get somebody else to agree with me that I'm right and God's wrong, then maybe I can make my case better. I hope this is relating to somebody other than me. Otherwise, you're thinking I'm the worst possible guy to be preaching to you today at all. When you have a complaining friend, what you need to remember is that uh, counsel is different than complaining. When you go to get counsel from a friend, you should listen to them tell you some things. And the surefire way to know if you're just complaining to them is if it's just you looking for airtime, spouting off whatever's on your heart. And then when you're done talking, you say, well, I'm so glad I got that off my chest. See you next time. And you're out. When you're truly looking for counsel from a friend, what you're going to say is, how does that hit you? Because I'm so far in the middle of the misery that I don't know what the truth is. And friend, in the body of Christ, God has given you friends that are in the middle of misery. And the only way you can keep that cloud of funk from getting on you is to give them the word of God and give them the love of Jesus. And they need it even if they don't want it. And I'll just tell you, friend, if you're in the middle of collecting complaining friends, please listen when they challenge you. Because when they bring you the word of God, they're right and you're wrong. Well, no, they're not. God's right. And you needed to hear it. Now, what has God given you that you need to be grateful for? Well, I don't know. This is one of those times where I get to go back and do what Fred said and tell you how this hits me. I've been a pastor for, I don't know, close to 20 years. I'm a son of a pastor. My dad served in little churches. He doesn't have a book deal. He doesn't have a podcast. He's a nobody. The only way you know his name is we have the same name. He's David Spray Jr. I'm David Spray III. You've never heard of either one of us probably before today. My dad deserves a book deal. He's incredible. Everybody should know the name of my father. He's the most godly man I've ever met. But he labors in, secure, in obscurity in small churches. And he serves them. And if I'm not careful, I can complain with all my small church buddies and go, man, why don't you get the good deal? Why aren't you getting called for Catalyst? Why don't you get to go to that conference? Why don't you get all those looks? Because, man, you've got the goods. I've heard you pray. I've seen your heart. I see what you do. I see the way you love people. Why do only those guys get those positions in those cities and those towns and they get those salaries and they get those cars? And it bothers me because I've seen guys on both sides and I've seen guys with success that I'm like, they're not worthy. Now, I forget that we're none of us is worthy. But in that moment, I'm like, why is this little church guy not getting what this guy gets? Because in my economy, this guy deserves it more. Man, God wore me out last night. Because there were a few things I was like, well, Fred told me to share some stuff. And out of respect, I'm doing it. But I'm like, I don't know y'all enough to share all my junk with you. And if I share it all, then all of a sudden you're going to kick me out the door. <clears throat> but this is what God said. David, I don't call men to pastor so that they get the goods. I call men to pastor so that their people get the goods. And this is where he got me. God has put some of the best pastors in small churches because those churches deserve great pastors. Fred, you didn't ask for this. You're worthy of a huge church. But God gave you us. But even bigger, he gave us you. He gave us Nick and Amy and Caleb 
and uh, children's ministry? Somebody help me. Sarah, I have middle school kids. <laughs> Leah in the office, our elders. Other people I don't know. Carol, somebody else. You fill in the blank. If you know the name I'm missing, you tell God how great they are. Because this is the deal. It's not, we don't serve the Lord for what he gives us. We serve the Lord for what we get to give other people. Because here's the deal. We got a bargain in Fred Baker. Don't go anywhere, son. We need you. My family needs you. I, at this season in our life, I desperately needed you. Family needs Caleb. We need Nick. Amy came in, loved on us week one, week two, week three, week four, and kept saying, when are you going to join? I'm like, I don't know. Just be patient. <laughs> now, it would be real easy to be miserly and to tell God all the things we don't have. But I got today a chance to preach the glorious praise of God to his people. It doesn't get any better than this, people. Even for those of you who slept through half of it, it's okay. For 20 years, I looked at little church guys and thought it was about them getting what they deserved. When God told me last night to stop it, I repented before him last night and I did it last service and I'm doing it right now. Confession to you. From now on, every time I see a guy laboring in obscurity who's got the goods, who has the prayer life, I'm gonna praise him for giving those people such an incredible gift in their pastor. You see how we can flip this if we're not careful? When we focus more on us and what we think we deserve than what God is and who he is and what he wants for us, we turn that misery into miserliness and we don't act gratefully. So I'm grateful for what God's given us. I'm grateful for his word. What's the motive for all this? Well, one, it's reverence and unity in the body. Verse 15 says, I pray this so that you'll be blameless and innocent, children of God who don't have any blemishes. So we're motivated because it's the right thing to do. We're also motivated because of evangelism. When we act this way in a lost and fallen world, they're going, you should have lit them up. And you're like, but that's not God what God told me to. And they go, man, I've never seen anybody handle adversity the way you do. And you just say, you know what? I've never had Jesus be so strong in my life as he was yesterday. You want to know him? Evangelism motivates us. Encouragement motivates us. And he says, I love this in verse, this is so strong, in verse 16. He said, hold fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ, so that, Paul says, on the day of Christ, when I'm dead and buried and I'm looking at Jesus face to face, that I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain, even if I'm being poured out as a drink offering. He says, even if my life is spilt, it diffuses into the air and it absorbs into the ground and nobody sees anything of Paul but his churches and the people that he loved. The encouragement that we do this for, we do this to encourage our pastors. Because when you pastor, it's like building sandcastles in a storm. And then we watch our people and they stack up blocks and bricks of stones and they become oaks of righteousness as the scriptures say. We look back and go, you know what, yesterday was a bad day, but that's a good work that God did and I was glad to be a part of it. God ministers to your pastors through your growth. So sometimes you're, you're growing because they need to see it and they need the encouragement. And then finally, and I love that Paul starts by saying, hey, be careful not to be so concerned about yourself. But he finishes by saying, and by the way, the good news is you really get the good stuff. Because the last piece is the promise of joy motivates us. Verse 18, he says, and he closes, and I will too in a sec. He says, likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. He says, look, I'm so happy. I'm so happy that you're looking more and more like Jesus. And when you get happy, it gets me happy, and the joy of the Lord will overwhelm you. He says, so, 
Work your relationship with Jesus with fear and trembling. Do it without griping and complaining. Pursue God on your own in a way that affects other people. And when you do, you'll find joy. Because the joy doesn't come in the goodies. The joy comes in the pursuit of the good God. I used to be a children's pastor. And I don't want to belittle the word of God by giving you a simple story. But that's the way God speaks to me. In the middle of prepping this sermon two weeks ago, I kept thinking the song, I'm going on a bear hunt. A big, big bear hunt. Remember it? Oh, there's a tree. Can't get over it. Can't get under it. Got to what? Go around it. Okay, I'm closing with an illustration nobody understands. Um, there's a pond. I can't go around it. Can't go over it. I've just got to go. Y'all, we're not on a bear hunt. We're on a great big God hunt. And there's something in the way. So get over it. Go around it or just go through it. But don't go alone. You must go with Jesus. Amen? When you do, dissatisfaction, grumbling and complaining, they will dissolve and praise God, they will disappear. And what you'll be left with is gratitude that expresses itself in generosity. You will not hold out on God or anybody else anymore. And that is good news. Amen? Father, we love you. We thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you that you do not give up on us. We thank you that your word is good and that you are. I thank you that you inhabit us and you give us an opportunity to praise you. So we come to you today as we close the service and we celebrate our opportunity to spend time with you alone.